This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Such Sights to Show, a all-things Clive Barker podcast. Folks, we are knee-deep in Midian still, so I'm Joe Lipset. I'm joined, as always, by Mr. Brian Christopher. Hi, Brian. Hey, Joe. I am mighty confused. <laughs> yeah, so folks, uh, last time we talked about Nightbreed, we were talking about the theatrical cut. And today we are talking about the director's cut of Nightbreed, but uh, we did realize we got into a bit of a snafu when we were talking about the theatrical. Turns out that these two cuts are very difficult to separate slash find. So, Mr. Brian, uh, (laughs) would you like to confess anything? Mm, forgive me father for i have sinned (laughs) (laughs) so or forgive me baphomet for i have sinned there we go um so yeah apparently when you try and find different versions of nightbreed on streaming there are lots of very different ways that they kind of package the thumbnails and advertise how long it's going to be what version Mm -hmm. it is because i have seen versions where it said uh theatrical cut two hours or director's cut two hours and 24 minutes which i think is actually the cabal cut yes i'm becoming fairly certain that there is some kind of a a sect or a cult out there that is trying (laughs) to prevent the theatrical cut from seeing the light of day anymore because even if (laughs) when you uh, there, there is a version that I saw on my streaming uh, device where it said theatrical cut 139 minutes and mm-hmm. I went in and like, if you look at the time frame bar, it says two hours. Yeah. So all this is a long way to say uh, when I thought I was watching the theatrical cut uh, for our previous episode, uh, I was, I was watching the director's cut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, yeah, because I was kind of like, I've heard people say like the theatrical cut is not great compared to the director's cut. And I was like, I, I like this. I'm really interested to see what the director's <laughs> cut is going to look like. Uh, turns out I, I know what the director's cut looks there like. Yeah, you started with the director's cut. You've seen Clyde Barker's preferred vision. But yes. um Okay, so it does make this a little bit challenging, but also I think your experience is therefore going to be representative of a lot of folks. So, you know, folks, if you've been watching along in anticipation of the conversations, the likelihood is, is that you probably could only find the director's cut, like full peek behind the curtain. I had to download an illegal copy to have my part of the conversation on the theatrical cut last episode. Just putting this out, uh, like audio, audio evidence. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. Canada doesn't actually have any anti-piracy laws. Oh. <laughs> so I am free compared to you folks down there. We just get warnings from our internet providers who are like, <laughs> no, stop doing that. <laughs> you get a firm, firmly worded letter. Mm-hmm. saying It's all very don't. Canadian. 
<laughs> but um okay so mr brian this is how we're gonna kind of pursue this episode we're gonna zero in a little bit on some of the specificities that make these two cuts different so i guess the the first couple of big things is just that we're actually getting a lot more lori in the director's cut so there's two early scenes in the film. One is when Laurie goes to visit Boone at work, and we actually see that he works in a uh, mechanic shop or some kind of car detailing place, and they have like a very aggressive face makeout scene. And then this is followed by him having sexy, fiery hallucinations based on the hallucinogenic pills that Decker gives him, and he has like a weird trippy scene where he and Lori are making out, but they're moving almost, I don't know. It's a, it's a very interestingly shot sequence. And then he ends up going to see Lori sing at her nightclub act where she performs Johnny get angry and he leaves before she spots him. And then basically a lot of the film continues from that point, more or less the same. Yeah, this is all sounding super familiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting about this is that without these sequences, Lori is present in the film. Like we know that they are not having challenges, but that he has been plagued by these persistent dreams. And, you know, he's been working with Decker, but also kind of avoiding them because things have gotten a bit better. And they're planning this couple's weekend where they're going to get away. But we don't really know anything else about Lori. So, mm. like, they seem to be okay sexually, but we never see them have sex. Whereas here, it's like they're aggressively making out. He's imagining having sex with her. And also, she doesn't have anything by herself. So we don't know that she's a nightclub singer. Yeah, I feel like adding these elements for Lori is really a lot more in line with Cabal, with mm -hmm. Novella. Um, you know, you get a lot more of, of Lori, and, and it's not just about Boone, it's about both of these characters. And, and that's part of what I like about the book so much. And, you know, we've, we've had that discussion about the pitfalls of reading a book first, mm -hmm. having this idea in your head about what it's supposed to be, and then the movie can never live up to that because it's always going to be someone else's interpretation of how to like put that on the screen even even if it's the author himself which is the case right. we have here but like for, for me this isn't necessarily that just that pitfall of like well it wasn't i had in my head so i don't like it that's like a pretty firm piece of like what makes laurie's character like important in the book like finding mm -hmm. out more about her and like in the book there's a whole there are whole sequences where Boone's not even present, you know, and yeah. she is kind of on the hunt. He's more the damsel in distress for whole stretches of the novella, and she's kind of the one who's the investigator. So bringing some of that back is, I think, is is a good thing. And, and realizing now that that was absent from the theatrical cut, uh, yeah, I, I think if if I had seen the theatrical cut, I would have that would have been a glaring omission for me. Well, what's interesting too is that. You know, in both versions of the film, we do get these parts where Laurie is off investigating Midian and she's working with Rachel. She's rescuing Babette and that kind of stuff. And 
I don't think it necessarily hurts the theatrical version of the film, but when you actually know a bit more about Laurie, it doesn't make the transition to her point of view feel quite as jarring. Like, Mm. I guess the weird thing to say about all of this is that I do think the director's cut plays better, even though it is longer. It feels like we're fleshing out the world a little bit more, but I would argue the pacing is just a little bit more appropriate. And things like the shift between character points of view goes down easier, even though at the end of the day, if folks did manage to track down the theatrical cut, it's not a wholly different experience. Gotcha, gotcha. But yeah, it sounds like there is a little bit of in the theatrical cut, it's you're following Boone and then all of a sudden you're following Lori. Mm-hmm. After he dies, yeah. You're following both of them and then you're just following Lori when he, yeah, quote unquote dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's websites that have clocked the differences down to the second and there's a lot of little changes, you know, we hold on the shot a little bit longer. You know, there's a scene where after Boone dies, Lori imagines that she's back at home and she sees a kind of ghost Boone fluttering in the windowsill. And that's different in the director's cut compared to the theatrical where it's not present. And like, do we lose huge things by not having that scene included? No, because we still know that Laurie is thinking about Boone. She's missing him. She wants to be reunited with him, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that there's a bunch of little touches where they start to add up over the course of the director's cut that just seem, I guess, more in line with the kinds of vehicles we've seen Barker direct, where he is interested in telling a variety of different kinds of stories. Yeah, I mean, it just sounds like this is a little bit more robust than the theatrical cut, where they've just really kind of like hacked it down to, you know, who whoever it was that edited it. Because I think, if I remember correctly, like the original editor quit when yes. studio interference started like really hacking away at this thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think it's that, that usual base instinct of a studio to not trust the attention span of their audience. So they just try and get it down to like the absolute nitty gritty, you know, um, cause I think it does get it down to what, like hour and 40 minutes, something like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's definitely, you know, it sounds like that would be significantly faster paced, but if it's going to be kind of that jarring, then it's worth keeping. It, it actually kind of sounds like a similar thing to when Nia DaCosta did the, the Candyman requel. Right. A few years ago, it was it was very tight. It was very quick paced. I think it was like 90 minutes. But honestly, and I say this as someone who usually like, you know, shorter, the better for me. Mm-hmm. I I wanted more. Right. So I, I feel like that's <laughs> that's probably where I would have left myself feeling had I actually gotten a chance to see the theatrical cut of Nightbreed. I probably would have been left wanting a little bit wanted it to be a little bit more robust, which is what we get in the director's cut. Mm hmm. And before we jump to the end, which is where most of the significant changes occur, I did want to highlight, because I'm sure there's folks who want us to acknowledge it, that uh, Doug Bradley's Lyle Berg in the theatrical cut is dubbed over. We talk about it briefly in the other episode, but obviously with the director's cut, he gets to use his regular voice, whereas in the theatrical cut, for some reason, they dubbed him over in like a German accent. What is with the studio impulse to take like key characters in Clive Barker movies and dub them over with a different accent? 
because mm-hmm. <laughs> they did it to poor Frank in Hellraiser. Yeah. Uh, kind of turned him into like a sleazy American guy when he was clearly a sleazy uh, British guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and here they take they take poor Doug Bradley and, and just insert a German accent. That sounds um, needless to me. Yeah. I'll confess, I, I can't even remember hearing the German when I watched the theatrical cut, but I didn't. I wasn't paying attention until after when we were thinking about talking about them separately mm-hmm. that I was like, oh, OK, I should have been taking note of that. So I don't know how distinct or even audible it is. I'd be curious to hear from listeners if they're like, oh, yeah, no, you <laughs> you done fucked up. It's very, very obvious. But I found it just a perplexing decision. I'm not sure what it adds to the Nightbreed unless we're trying to reinforce that they really do come from all kinds of cuts and nationalities and they've all congregated here, but maybe from around the globe. Yeah, I guess. And and, and oddly too, like it, it looks like at least in this case, because in, in Hellraiser, they used a different guy's voice uh, over Sean Chapman here. It, it looks like at least bradley got to redub his own vocals he just had Mm -hmm. to use a a german accent for it so yeah i don't know maybe it is supposed to be something where it's like just hinting at like how wide reaching this group of folks is but it's also weird considering well it takes place in canada so Mm -hmm. if he he has a british accent then that's already showing like this yeah wide reaching um um kind of like net Mm -hmm. so yeah it's just uh, decisions with a capital D, I guess. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Okay, so let's talk about the end then. So there's a couple of very, very big differences that I do think dramatically alter the outcome of the film. So in the theatrical cut, the first big change is that Narcisse is killed earlier. So he's actually not around to help out against Decker So Decker basically just like puts him down very early in the attack on Midian. Mm. And then we get fiery, fiery explosions, blah, blah, blah. And then we go directly from the destruction of Midian. Boone has been told by Baphomet, okay, you need to go out and find a new place for us to settle. And we just cut directly to all of the Nightbreed on the hill being like, okay, Cabal is going to take us to our new place. Credits. Hmm. Whereas in the director's cut, what we get is Boone saying, okay, I'm Cabal now. I need to go and lead these people to sanctuary. And Lori, you cannot come because you are a human. And she says, cool, no worries. And then he turns around and she goes, I lied and stabs herself and dies by suicide, basically in an effort to get Boone to turn her so that she can accompany him. Mm -hmm. So basically theatrical cut. Lori is just like, cool, thanks for everything, Midian. See you burning later. And then she's going on with her life, presumably. We don't know. Director's cut, dies by suicide, is now part of the Nightbreed. Which, again, director's cut much more aligned with the way the book ends. 100%. Yeah. Also, I'm I'm curious because in Wikipedia, the, the version you saw, uh, I don't know if it included this, but Wikipedia includes an ending for the theatrical cut where Ashbury is standing over Decker's corpse. Mm-hmm. Decker gets resurrected? Yeah, yeah. So we talked about this a little bit. So Decker gets resurrected and... 
basically the presumption is that he will be the main adversary in Clyde Barker's follow-up because remember this was intended to sort of kickstart a Nightbreed slash Midian franchise whereas of course in the director's cut what we actually get is a focus on Ashbury as our potential villain so Decker is dead he's just gone he is out of the story and the focus will presumably follow Ashbury as he seeks revenge hmm Mm -hmm. (laughs) mm-hmm Which it's yeah. like, okay, so if you had wanted to continue this, like, I don't know if the decision behind the theatrical cut was that we like Cronenberg and we think that this villain has something. Because I do think part of my issue with Ashbury is that he's introduced very late in the story. He's not incredibly well fleshed out. Mm-hmm. The theatrical cut doesn't include quite as much of him either. So I wonder if they were like, trying to rein the character in and focusing on Decker, who is principally a villain for at least the first half of the film. Yeah. I mean, again, if we're kind of going into that studio thought process, you have this villain played by like a relatively well-known horror director. So there's the novelty of that. He's got the Mm -hmm. mask. He's he's got that gimmick. You know, maybe they're seeing like, this is how we push sequels for this you know it, yeah. it becomes like a a boon and decker you know just kind of like you know trilogy arc or something like that where you have these very identifiable like shortcuts and like ways to 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 draw in audiences mm-hmm. but i think that just goes back to the the studio not knowing what this movie is and not knowing right. how to market it you know going back to that idea that this was marketed as i think a slasher mm-hmm. um when, when when it was you know with with trailers and, and stuff like that and so it sounds like they were kind of trying to go all in on the the decker aspect of it all yeah and yeah it just i think that just contributed to the the mess that was like audience expectation and then what they actually got with this, you know, contemplative, you know, who were the real monsters thing mm-hmm. that, that Clive Barker loves to do. And I find very interesting, but you know, if, if I was going into the movie thinking it was going to be a slasher, I might be like, well, what the hell is this? Yeah. Whereas the theatrical cut is very much a, Oh, okay. So you expected slasher. Here we go. We're resurrecting the principal antagonist and he'll be back. Mm-hmm. And it's weird, though, because it more or less disavows Boone and Laurie as the people that we've invested emotionally in over the course of the film. Like, it's been all about their journey to find Midian to be reunited. And I get that her killing herself for love is a bit of a weird slash downer ending. But, you know, the director's cut also ends with the image of the two of them. So instead of the Nightbreed on the hill, it's more about Laurie and Boone being reunited. And then it's suggestive of this prophecy of Cabal, right? Like that we've seen in the paintings over the beginning and the end credits. So I think theatrically, it makes sense if you're saying, yeah, it's a slasher film. We're looking at franchises, sequels. We need a big villain. We don't want to bring in this weird priest because he's not as much of a character. You're taking more risks with the director's cut, but it also feels like a more cohesive, you know, well thought out story. And it doesn't feel like they're just teeing up the sequel. Like, yes, they are leaving things open ended so that there could be more to tell, but it seemed a lot more satisfying with 
that resolution. Like, I, I actually really like that that last visual of Laurie and Boone kind of standing you oh, know, in front of that nightscape. And then it transitioned into that, uh, into like the, not cave painting, but just like mm-hmm. the. It's a tapestry, I think. Tapestry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's so pretty, too. Like, you know, watching both versions in such a short time frame helped me to really appreciate that. Barker has this great visual eye as a filmmaker that, of course, we've seen in some of his more, I don't want to say rudimentary, but like his sketch-like imagery Mm. from his drawings. So I just really appreciate the beauty that he ends up finding in some of these shots. And I think that that's a hugely memorable final image to end your movie on. Absolutely. Yeah. Which, again, kind of makes me happy that, like, this is the version I saw and the mm-hmm. one that is kind of like my my focal point for this as opposed to because that actually like if, if I had seen the theatrical cut and had seen like the kind of like stare ending, it would have mm-hmm. been that same thing that annoyed me about Rawhead Rex, where it was just right. like this seems totally shoehorned in. <laughs> like this, this is th- this no way fits with what we've just seen and is really just a shameless attempt to be like, you know, the end question mark. So right. I am, I'm very glad in that sense that I, I got the ending that I did. Mm-hmm. Now what's interesting too, of course, this is me just culling from Wikipedia. So I've not seen the cabal cut, which we talked about a little bit last episode. It's quite a bit longer. Purportedly, it just has like everything that they could find thrown into it. The length varies depending on which cut of the cabal you're looking at. But apparently it does bring the resurrection of Decker back in as a post credit sequence. So Mm. uh, I guess the cabal cut is the cake and everything else cut where it's like you just get everything including more decker (laughs) which i guess makes sense right because it exists in that theatrical cut so there's a way for them to just be like hey and we can throw this in at the end can you imagine if they had released the cabal cut in theaters like if that was the theatrical can you imagine going in being an audience member expecting like some kind of quasi slasher movie and mm-hmm. getting the two and a half hour contemplation on what it means <laughs> to be a monster <laughs> yes with probably not great pacing because yeah. <laughs> it does sound like it's just kind of everything in there because i will say you know i don't mind this film we've said before neither one of us prefer this to hellraiser like Mm. there are other texts of clive barker's that i would probably rather watch but this is a a reasonably paced film like especially if you read cabal this feels like a relatively faithful adaptation so there's a, a certain deliberate pacing to it but yeah i can't imagine going in being like okay button face here we go (laughs) three and a half hours two and a half hours what (laughs) i mean i guess it would fit in nowadays with the the length of like you know prestige movies now just like pushing the three three and a half hour mark so Mm -hmm. you know maybe today it would work but i know it sure as hell wouldn't have worked in 1990 not 90 no um okay Mr. Brian, do you have anything else that you want to talk about with regard to Nightbreed, either the theatrical or director's cut? Just that uh, if you're out there, folks, and trying to find a theatrical cut out in these streets and having trouble, don't worry, you're not alone. It's not you. 
if you have found it and found it very easily, uh, then I'm just an idiot and don't listen to anything I have to say. Just uh, take more stock into what Joe's been talking about. (laughs) (laughs) But no, other than that, I mean, if there was going to be one that I couldn't find, I'm glad it's a theatrical cut because the director's cut is a very satisfying movie. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think... In some ways, it's almost reassuring that Barker's preferred vision is the one that's really readily accessible now after having been sidelined for so, so long. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I do find it fascinating to be able to compare different cuts of movies. You know, we had this experience when we talked about Lord of Illusions as well, right? The director's cut of that film is quite a bit more difficult to find or it's priced into oblivion online. So... It's a bit frustrating to me that for Nightbreed, you can see the one that Clive Barker wants you to see, whereas with Lord of Illusions, aka the one that turned him off Hollywood so badly that he was like, no, I'm never doing this again. (laughs) It's still really hard to see his preferred vision of that film. Well, speaking of preferred visions of films... Mm. I like that segue, Mr. Brian. <laughs> I am I'm being bold and, and taking it on myself to, to segue into our next movie because I am just so excited. Mm-hmm. We are going to get to watch the Hellraiser Bloodline work print. Yes. Finally. Folks, we, <laughs> we have sold either a limb, a child, or part of our mortgage. But yes, we have both acquired the Arrow. What is it? The Quartet of Blood? Of torment. Torment. Yeah. Torment. Love uh, it. <laughs> it's, I have the same thing, though, where every time I try to remember what this collection is called, I'm just like content of of torture no mm-hmm. that's not it like it's it's this this weird combination of words where it's like it makes sense and it's actually like it's it's good but it's not catchy so i keep forgetting what it's called yeah 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 it does not flow off the tongue very easily but uh needless to say it is in both of our possessions folks we're not shills, but also this set is gorgeous looking. Like the packaging alone is immaculate. Yeah. And I am I am not someone who um, regularly buys physical media. Like I usually save it for stuff that I'm like is very important to me. And mm-hmm. like I've always been kicking myself for not getting the original Arrow trilogy. Right. Uh, but maybe it was just like deep in my soul I knew one day. <laughs> They were going to do a proper quadrilogy release, and here we are. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, like, you know you're kind of in for something special with this when you look at the front of the box and, like, you see the profile pinhead, but you see, like, these little squares that are showing hints of, like, there's stuff underneath. Mm-hmm. And as you take out, like, the content in, in this case, you just see different versions of pinhead where it's like getting sliced down deeper. So it's like his face and then it's his musculature and then it's the skeleton. And it's just, mm-hmm. the artwork is so beautiful. And <laughs> there's like a Clive Barker novella, quote unquote, sized book with this thing that has like a bunch of like behind the scenes stuff and interpretation. Right. And like, I'm really looking forward to, to just digging into all of that. But yeah, this, this is a gorgeous collection and I am very looking forward to seeing not just, you know, bloodline and the work print, but like, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how um, all of these movies come through in, in this uh, particular set. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so that's going to be our next episode after this. We're going to be talking about that warp print of Bloodline, finally. And then if you're reading along, we're going to be tackling Books of Blood Volume 5 after that. But don't worry, folks. We promise we haven't left Midian behind completely. We're just slowly working our way through Midian Unmade, Tales of Clyde Barker's Nightbreed. So that is also on the horizon. We're just, uh, you know, trying to negotiate how much reading we can take on right now. Yeah, mix it up a little bit. We bounce back and forth between different uh, proper uh, Barker concepts. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, Mr. Brian, if people want to lambast you for not realizing that you were watching the director's <laughs> cut, how would they get in touch? Uh, feel free to do that either on Instagram or on Blue Sky uh, at Evil Taylor Hicks. Excellent. I welcome your derision and contempt. <laughs> you know what, folks? If you found that theatrical cut, then you obviously did a certain amount of digging. So good on you. <laughs> and uh i could be reached at b stole my remote and that's the letter b and we'll thank the anatomy of a screen pod squad network for hosting the show so yes uh back to reading get those novels cracking folks we will return but uh in the meantime yeah it's work print time excited Squad.